Hello everyone and welcome to the School for CEOs Leadership Insights Podcast. In this episode, I'm delighted to share the story of master storyteller Ian Rankin OBE. Ian is most famous for his Rebus crime novels, which have now been translated into over 30 languages and are bestsellers worldwide. Here he shares a glimpse into life as a writer, how to tell a great story, and his reflections on John Rebus. I'm Gemma Soul, and I hope you enjoy the episode. I'm delighted to have Ian Rankin with me today for the School for CEOs podcast. Welcome, Ian. Thank you. Ian, there's a number of things that I'd like to ask you about. I'm dying to get into the Rebus novels, but before we do, I'm really interested to explore your career. So when was it that you discovered that you had a skill or that you were good at writing? Um, it was something that I had always done from a very early age. I was, a, I was addicted to reading. My parents weren't great readers. There weren't many books in the house, but I just had a passion for reading and lots of comics. At that time, there were lots of cheap comics coming out of D.C. Thompson and Dundee, bless them. The Dandy and the Beano and the Victor and the Hotspur, predominantly comics for boys. And that got me on the, the reading ladder because they were affordable and my parents didn't mind paying out a few pennies a week for me to get as many comics as I liked. And I did try dry, drawing cartoons and doing comic strips, but I wasn't very good at drawing. So it was from very early on, there was that thing where I'd could, I didn't just want to be a consumer, I wanted to be a producer. And having found out that I was no good at drawing, I then moved on to pop music and invented a band on paper and in my head and I was their lead singer. And I used to do a top ten every week, and I would write their lyrics and all sorts of stuff. So I was kind of starting to dabble with poetry, in a way. And that was right through school. It was mostly poetry I was writing. But great English teachers. I mean, we had really good teachers all through my school career in Fife. Um, comprehensive school. Uh, mostly local people who'd been to that school, gone off to teacher training college and come back to that school. And I had a succession of very good English teachers. And every week we got an essay which was a short story, to write. And that was always my favourite part of the week, was writing that short story. I think the thing is, Gemma, I mean, I was growing up in a small coal mining village uh, in Fife in which the coal had run out, and a little bit of hope had run out with it. But I could sit in my bedroom and explore the galaxy. I could be anybody I wanted to be, and I could have any number of adventures in this very, what people would have seen as being a very boring tribal uh, place to grow up. But that inner creative life um, just kept me going. And uh, how's your singing voice? Singing voice, terrible, which is oh. why I'm in a band. Uh, I mean, I was in a band when I was 17, 18. I did eventually join a band called The Dancing Pigs, the second best punk band in Fife. Um, there were two punk bands in Fife. There was the Skids, and then a long way behind the Skids, there was us. Uh, and then I gave that up uh, after about a year, and then came back into it just a couple of years ago when I a bunch of miscreant musicians, mostly journalists, um, full-time journalists, part-time punks, got in touch and said, did I fancy joining our band and needed someone to do vocals? And I said, yes. So we've recorded a single. So I'm living the dream, living the dream at age 59. <laughs> and uh, you mentioned in some of your commentary that actually when you were in your teens, 17, you wanted to be an accountant. <laughs> so... Where did that come I didn't from? want to be an accountant. What happened was, I mean, I was the first member of my family to go to university, working class kid. Your parents think you're going to get a trade. You're going to go to university to get a trade. You're going to be a doctor, a lawyer, um, a dentist, an accountant, whatever. And I had one uncle uh, 
on my mum's side of the family who lived in Bradford in Yorkshire. And he was an accountant, a chartered accountant, and he owned his own car and he owned his own home. My parents owned neither of those. So it was expected that I would go and study accountancy to become like my uncle. And I went along with this for a while, pretty much until I was 17 and I got my uh, results and my hires. And I hadn't done very well in accountancy and economics. I'd scraped by. And I'd done really well in English. And I was visiting my sister, who also lived down in England at that time, and just had this epiphany. I thought, why am I going to go to university to do a subject I'm not very interested in just to get a job? Um, Why not go to university and study my passion? So I had to break the terrible news to my parents that I was going to study English literature at Edinburgh University. And they said, my God, what kind of job will you get with that? Teaching. I thought, I'll just be like one of these great teachers I've had who go off to uni, go to teacher training college, come back to their old school and teach the next generation of kids. That was as far as I could see myself going because by that time I also had an inkling that actually what I wanted to do was right. Um, and all during my university career, well, for the first couple of years of my university career, I was just scraping through, just passing and no more, because I was spending so much time on extracurricular activities. But the extracurricular activities, as it turned out, were going to be more valuable to me in later life. So joining the Poetry Society, getting to meet other writers, working on the um, university newspaper, um, trying uh, for any literary magazines that were getting formed around that time by students um, or for whom students were writing joining the Film Society and writing reviews of films and stuff, all of that was honing my craft as a writer and was going to stand me in very good stead in the future. I'd like to ask you about writing a bestseller. You published your first novel when you were in your mid-twenties, and when you were writing your first novel, you were still technically in full-time education. You were studying or supposedly writing a PhD thesis on uh, Muriel Sparks um, literature. But you've now published over 25 bestsellers spanning over four decades. So, Ian, what makes a bestseller? Oh, nobody knows what makes a bestseller. Publishers always get caught out. There's always a surprise joker in the pack that comes along and sells millions that nobody thought was um, going to sell anything at all. I mean, you know, I know publishers who've turned down The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, who've turned down Girl on a Train, uh, who've turned down Gone Girl, you name it. Any number of bestsellers were never expected to be bestsellers. Look at J.K. Rowling. Um, nobody expected that kids were still going to be interested in wizards who go to private school, which is essentially what it is. It's like an old-fashioned private school story with a, with a, a quirky hero. Um, who knew? Nobody knew. Um, so publishing is full of these surprise bestsellers. In my case, it, was, it wasn't that. It was just persistence. It was... Finding a genre that I liked, which was crime fiction. I found crime fiction a very good means of writing about society, of writing about big moral questions of good and evil, writing about Edinburgh from top to bottom and using Edinburgh as a microcosm for Scotland. If I wanted to write about politics or anything, um, racism, you name it, I could do it in a crime novel. So Rebus became a very useful means of looking at the world. My very first book was The Flood, which was about the village I grew up in and was published by a very small press in Edinburgh called Polygon and sold about 300 copies. I think I got paid the princely sum of £200 for it. But because I had a book published, an agent came sniffing around and I said, well, I'm writing a book just now about an Edinburgh cop. And she went, OK. And she took it off to London and tried to sell it in London. The first five publishers she approached turned it down and the sixth and final publisher said yes. And I got paid, you know, I don't know, £1,000 or something for that. Uh, but I had a London publisher and I had an agent. 
and then my agent went missing. Uh, she disappeared off the face of the earth and I had to start again from scratch with a different agent. Um, and I, I was scratching around. I wasn't making much money. I didn't know what kind of writer I wanted to be. After the first Rebus novel, which did no business at all, I did a spy novel and a thriller. And then I came back to Rebus because a very nice editor said to me, I liked that character. And I said, yeah, I liked him as well. He said, well, bring him back and do another book. And soon after that, I realised that what I really wanted to write about was Edinburgh and that Rebus was a good means of doing it and exploring the city from top to bottom. I was lucky in a way, that, in a sense, because I was published at a time when publishers... It was still a kind of gentleman's game in London, uh, UK publishing. Um, as long as they had authors on their list who were making them money, they could take a punt on authors they liked who were making them no money at all. And I fell into that latter category. So for quite a few books... I was always, I thought, on the verge of being dropped by my publisher because I wasn't making him any money. Now, the advances I was getting for the books were not big, but at some point, a publisher is going to lose interest in you. You become what's called mid-list, which is that you're just ticking along, but nobody's really excited about you. Uh, and I was, that was always a worry to me, and it was Re- Rebus novel number seven or eight, um, Black and Blue, which was the breakthrough book. And by then, I'd written... I don't know, maybe another seven or eight books on top of the Rebus books. So I was into my 15th or 16th novel. Um, and that book just won big prizes. And the branding looked right. The cover looked right. It suddenly didn't look like a typical crime novel. It looked more like literature. Um, the next book after that scraped into the top 10 UK bestseller list. Uh, and in the book after that, I think, probably went to number one. So it was a very long apprenticeship. And these days, I doubt any publisher would keep me going as long as my publisher did, not making him any money. I'd like to ask you a bit about that, because you've mentioned your publisher, you've mentioned an editor that's supported you, uh, your agent who's, well, was there and then not there. So how important is the team in, in your success as a writer? Well, I think in my, in my, yeah, in my experience, it was, it was huge. I mean, it was everybody working together, getting, the, getting the, the look of the jackets right, getting the publicity right, getting the marketing right, writing better and better books, um, getting bookshops on site, getting the books into supermarkets, so your sales team has to be good and energetic. Everybody, everybody plays a part, um, and they don't always get appreciated for it. It's the author who gets the kudos uh, if and when success finally comes. These days, I think if you were starting out in publishing, it might be different because a lot of writers don't go the traditional publishing route. They self-publish. And you can go to Amazon with your ebook and say to them, I've got this thing I've written, and they'll say, great, we'll put it on our list. Um, you've then got to become a marketing guru yourself. You've got to become the sales rep and the marketer and publicity and the editor and the cover designer. You've got to do all of that. But you do get an extraordinary amount of control with that, and you can make a lot of money because you can split with Amazon the cover price, whatever you sell the book for, you can split that 50-50. Whereas in traditional publishing, the author gets 10% of the cover price. So a book sells at 20 quid, the author gets two quid. And everything else is split between costs, the publisher, and the bookseller. So, you know, unless you're selling a scads of books, you're not going to make a huge amount of money that way. Uh, if you become a successful ebook seller, then you can do good business. But funnily enough, every ebook person I know who started off that way is desperate to get a traditional publishing deal. They want their physical book. They want to hold that object in their hands. It's not enough just to have this digital thing that goes out there and disappears again. 
Um, and many of them have made that transition. Many of the successful ones have made that transition. But the, 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 the market has changed. The way people get delivery of the, the stories has changed. The publishing industry has changed. It's no longer a gentleman's club the way it used to be. It's much more professional. Um, it's much more corporate. There are really only maybe half a dozen big publishers in the game now. So, for example, my publisher in the UK, who I've been with for 20-odd years, Orion, were eventually bought up by Hachette, um, a French publisher, and Hachette also owned my American publisher, Little Brown. So although I'm published by Orion in the UK and Little Brown in the US, I'm actually basically owned by this French company, Hachette. You mentioned, in a, sort of a long apprenticeship, uh, you'd written 15-ish books. It strikes me that you, know, you have to be incredibly resilient and thick-skinned to keep pursuing that and keep trying um, when you know, it's tough. So did you ever feel that, pre- did that pressure ever affect on your creativity and you know, your performance as a writer? How did you, how did you deal with it? I was lucky early on uh, because my wife was a big supporter of mine. She worked as a civil servant in London and then persuaded me that to go full-time as a writer we should move to the south of France and become self-sufficient. So we scraped along in the south of France and that was okay until kids came along. Once we started having kids I realised I wasn't making enough money to support my family uh, because my wife at that point didn't have a job. and so I was having panic attacks, and I was thinking, this is a disaster, we're going to have to move back to the UK, I'm going to have to get a job. So there were a lot of times when I nearly did crumble. But the thing is, it was the only thing I wanted to do. And I mean, you know, the advice I give to everybody, writer, young writers or whatever the field they're in, is just follow your passion. Don't follow the money per se, but follow your passion. And I just wanted to write these books about this city and these characters. And I thought, if I keep writing better and better books, eventually things might change. And they did change, but it took a long time. And in the early days, I needed the support of family and friends. I really needed that support uh, physically, emotionally, and in every other way, financially. I needed that support. Um, and I did eventually, you know, there's a bit of luck. There's always a bit of luck in making it. Once you've made it, sustaining that success isn't a matter of luck. It's just a matter of persistence, doggedness, um, never getting lazy, uh, and and being prepared to get better and better, work harder at it. You know, you can't get lazy, which is frustrating to me. I wish I could just put my feet up and the books write themselves, you know, but no, it isn't like that. Every book is a challenge. Every book is a new challenge, and you want the next book to be better than the previous books. And when you've written 30-odd books, that's not easy to make, to feel that you're writing better books now than you were two or three books ago. Um, so all of that. Uh, is challenging, and then in between that, once you become a successful writer, suddenly your time is limited. So when I was a young, unsuccessful writer, nobody wanted me to do interviews like this. I didn't do any press, media, nothing like that. Uh, now I'm supposed to have a website. I'm supposed to be doing vlogs and blogs and Twitter and everything else, and keep fans aware of what I'm doing. I'm touring all the time. I'm going to festivals. Crime writers never used to get invited to literary festivals. Now we're invited to festivals all over the world. You could spend your whole year going to festivals and never write another word. Um, So you're doing all of that, and basically I'm running a business. I mean, John Rebus Limited is a limited company, so I'm now a company director. And I've got accountants and lawyers and financial advisors and this and that and the other, and we've got shares and we've got meetings and we have to have meetings about this and meetings about that. All of that gets in the way, um, mentally and physically, of you sitting down and writing your next book. And if you don't write another book, you're nobody. 
So at some point you've got to try and bracket off the time to sit down and, and, and be this other person who just sits and writes. So it really is a Jekyll and Hyde life. I mean, the Ian who sits talking to you today is not the Ian who will sit down and write the book. Very different character. He's much shyer, very inward-looking and introspective, as all writers usually are or were when they were kids, the quirky kids at school who just want to sit in their bedroom listening to music and writing poetry. Because you described yourself as a chameleon. Yeah, very much so, because I mean, growing up in a working-class village, I couldn't say to my friends, hey, I'm a writer. They'd have beaten me up. You know, I didn't say to my parents. My parents found out I was writing poetry because they read in a newspaper that I won second prize in a poetry contest. They had no idea. I hadn't told them because I didn't think they would understand. So I became very good at looking like I fitted in so that I wouldn't be an outsider. I wouldn't look different from the pack, different from the tribe. And, uh, and that continues to be the case. I think I am a, you know, I'm, I'm very different personalities depending on what I'm doing at any particular point in the day. I'd like to ask you about storytelling and I suppose the art of storytelling because it's we notice that the most inspirational leaders that we work with, they're, they're masters at storytelling. So in your view, what makes a compelling story? Well, the thing I've got to do is I've got to grab the reader from the very beginning. Say you've never read one of my books before. You walk into a bookshop, there's a big pile of Ian Rankin books. You pick one up, the cover looks interesting, you open it up and you look at the first line. I've got to have grabbed you. I've got to grab you. And I've got to take you with me. And crime fiction is good at doing that anyway because usually it opens with a mystery which will only be solved to the reader's satisfaction if they continue to read. And along the way, other mysteries will be opened up and there'll be little red herrings and little false avenues that they'll go down. And hopefully they enjoy the experience. So you've got to give people a story that they are gripped by and that they are enjoying being part of. And they need to get to the end to find out what happened. And I think that's how you take people with you, whether it's in business or anywhere else. You've got a compelling narrative. uh, You're charismatic. You've got a story that's worth telling. And you've got a way of telling it that is inspiring to people or at least keeps them curious keeps them wanting to know where you're going next with this story um, and you can take a workforce with you that way you can take a business with you that way you can take investors with you that way uh, if you do that it's, I've never thought about that before so thank you for making me think about it because it is true that uh, people in business do need to be compelling storytellers not liars though I tell lies, I tell lies for a living uh, and uh, uh, and people accept that. I mean, the, the, the readers accept that what they're getting is basically a bunch of porkies from me that feels like reality but isn't. Um, if you do that with, a, with an audience in a, in a business meeting, they'll soon go, hang on a minute, those figures aren't right. We're never going to make that much money next year. Why is he telling us that? What about your writing? So where do you draw your inspiration from? You mentioned Edinburgh as a city earlier. It comes from, I mean, stories are everywhere. Stories are swirling around us. I'm a great fan of news media. So I'll be listening to the radio news when I wake up in the morning. I'll then go and buy a newspaper and read it cover to cover. I might buy the Edinburgh Evening Paper. I will watch TV news at night. I'll read um, political magazines, um, general affairs magazines. And stories just jump out at me. So the last novel I wrote, In a House of Lies got its inspiration from a story that was in Private Eye, the satirical magazine. And for years they've been looking at a case of a um, Daniel Morgan, he was called. He was a private detective in London who was investigating alleged links between senior police officers and organised crime, and he was found hacked to death in a pub car park 30 years ago. 
And private eye just keep coming back to the story. They won't let it lie. They won't let it die. And I just thought, well, that's really interesting because, you know, the links between organised crime and, and high-ranking police officers is interesting from my perspective. A private detective, I'd not really written about those before in my books. And just something about that got the narrative motor going. It just, it just put the key in the ignition and turned it. And then my story, of course, went off in a very different direction from Daniel Morgan's story. But yeah, I can be standing in a pub and someone tells me a story and I just go, oh, that's interesting. Or a friend, you know, black and blue. My first successful book started with a friend telling me a story of something that happened to their brother. A party went to in Edinburgh that wasn't, that wasn't a party. Uh, just two guys who tied him to a chair, put a bag over his head and walked away and left him. And he escaped and went to the police and they never found out why this happened. They never came to the bottom of it. And I said, well, I've got to give that some closure in fiction. Now Because she said to me, she said, that's the end of the story. I went, no, no, that's the beginning of the story. I've now got to give it a kind of ending. Um, so if your antennae are twitching as a, as a storyteller, there are stories all around you. You can be standing in a pub, you can be overhearing a conversation on a train, you can see a character walking down the street who's a bit quirky, and you think, what's your story? Are you useful to me? Uh, Muriel Spark, bless her, most famous Edinburgh novelist after Robert Louis Stevenson and Scott, probably, um, says in one of her books that writers loiter with intent. So we're always trying to steal your soul. So oh, watch out, Gemma, question. watch out. <laughs> I'm suddenly on edge of here. Um, what about the character of Rebus? Where, where did he come from? You know what? He, popped, he just jumped into my head. I know this because I used to keep a page-a-day diary uh, of everything that happened to me on a particular day. And I know that I'd actually been into... Polygon Books, which is a very small publisher in Edinburgh, who had I'd just done a, signed a deal for my first book, The Flood. I'd gone back to my student Diggs and Arden Street in Marchmont in Edinburgh. Was sitting in the living room, which was my bedroom, my bed sit, and just this guy jumped into my head. And he was called Rebus, which means picture puzzle. And he was a character who's being sent picture puzzles. I thought, oh, isn't that clever? Call him something that actually means picture puzzle. I've now discovered it's also a Polish surname, so he's now got Polish roots, but I didn't know that when I invented the character. Um... And, you know, my first scribbles that I wrote about the book said he might be a cop. I really wasn't that interested in writing about a police detective or being a detective writer. I just wanted to write an updated version of, version of Jekyll and Hyde, where Mr. Hyde is basically sending puzzles to Dr. Jekyll to try and remind him of something that happened in their shared past that was traumatic for both of them. And that was it. Uh, and then he stuck around and I just thought I want to know more about you and the only way I could find out more about him was to keep writing stories about him and I've still not quite got to the I've not peeled every layer of the onion which is why I continue to write about him is to find out more about him and of course I made the decision rash but I stand by it um, that he would age more or less in real time so the rebus that I'm writing about now is not the guy I was writing about 10 or 20 books ago he's got health issues He's now retired. He's no longer a cop. Um, you know, people around him have changed. I mean, I love taking him into, putting him in situations where he, he decides to use his, his skill set. So he'll go off to look for this old dodgy pub where he used to have a snitch. And he'll get there to find it's now a wine bar. And the snitch is long gone. He's long deceased. So the world is changing rapidly around Rebus. And he allows me to look at that world um, with a fresh pair of eyes every time because his world is changing and he's changing. And the health issue I've given him, you know, he's got COPD, uh, emphysema, as we used to call it. So his world is narrowing. He can't climb stairs as readily as he used to. He certainly can't chase suspects. Um, he can't use his physical heft the way he did in the early books. He was quite a physical character, quite a macho character. And he's had to slow down. 
and the world is speeding up around them. So that keeps me on my toes. That keeps the series fresh. Um, and I, I always enjoy writing about him. Whenever he jumps onto a page, my heart leaps. And he's, he's got a brilliant mind. He's quite insular. He doesn't always share. I, I had a question to myself. Is he a maverick in that sense? Oh, he's definitely a maverick. Um, he's not a team player. He operates more, much more like an American private eye. Yeah, um, he's much more of a private eye. What he likes is when the bosses say to him, look, just go off and do your own thing, because he doesn't work well as a team player. He wouldn't last two minutes in today's police. Um, and he's not a realistic cop to the extent that he's never been a team player. And he's always breaking the rules or bending the rules. And that would have got him in so much trouble down the years that he would have been probably... He would certainly have been investigated by internal affairs, and in a couple of books he is investigated by internal affairs and makes enemies of them for life. Um... One senior police officer, I think he was even chief constable of Lothian and Borders many years ago, reviewed one of the books, and he gave me he gave me a lift because he said, "I wish I had one like Rebus in the force. There's room for one free thinker, one maverick, one person who's not a team player." And the thing about him is, he's persistent. If you give him a case to work on, he will gnaw away at it until he gets a result. He ain't going to let it go, which has been detrimental to his private life, his personal life. His relationships have all crumbled away and died and withered. He's got almost no friendships um, because the job has been his lover. The job has been the one true thing he believes in. So when he had to retire, when he was forced into retirement, it was devastating for him. And he's now desperately trying to feel useful in a world that's changed and says to him, you're no longer part of this life. Uh, In the last book... He went into his old police station um, uh, down in Leith, this police station he used to work in. And, of course, he's a young, fresh-faced person behind the desk. Can I help you, sir? Well, yeah, I'm, I'm an ex-CID. I used to work here. And, you know, he's not got an ID card. He can't get through. He can't get past the front desk. So that gives chal- that's challenging for him and challenging for me, but I really enjoy that. I enjoy the fact that he's having to deal with this new world. And technology's changed so much. The way police investigate crime has changed. Police Scotland, when it came in, was a huge change. Because audiences know this and my readers know this, I've got to be on my toes and make sure that the books are as realistic as I can make them within the confines of a detective story. There's one question that's been on my mind, um, and I did send you some themes, and this wasn't included in it. Um, but how much of Ian Rankin is in Rebus? Um, how much of Ian Rankin is in Big Jerk Afty? Well, it's a moot point. I, I would say when I started the books, there was almost nothing of me in Rebus at all. He smoked. I've never smoked. We came from the same place. We both grew up in Cardendown, but he left school at 15, as many of my friends, well, my friends left at 16. He's a generation older than me. Left at 15 and joined the army. And many of them, if they didn't have skills, if they weren't going to go into college or university, the um, job opportunities were slim. You had the Adrosyth Dockyard, you had uh, join the armed forces, join the police. That was about it. Or maybe try and get an apprenticeship or a trade. So Rebus joined the army. So, and I was brainy, went to university. So our lives split at age 15, 16 when he left school and I didn't. Um, He's older than me. He's a different generation from me. I think he's a much more cynical character than I am. He sees the world very much in absolutes, good and evil, black and white, whereas my job is to try and persuade him that the world is more subtle than that, more nuanced than that. So there's a little conversation between us, and I use characters like Siobhan Clark to try and put my point across. She's younger, more liberal, university educated. She's much more like me. I also don't think I'm very much like Big Jer Cafferty, Rebus's nemesis. They're very similar characters. They're almost Cain and Abel or Jekyll and Hyde. 
two sides of the same coin. Um, and Caffrey represents the way Rebus's life could have gone if he'd chosen the dark side. He could have become a gangster himself and a successful one, I dare say, because he's got that. He's got all the skills that you need. And Cafferty, by extension, would have made a very good CEO. Uh, in fact, there's one conversation in the latest book that he has with another gangster, an Irish gangster, by telephone, and they're kind of rubbing their hands at glee at the thought of Brexit because they say to each other, we are disaster capitalists. There is cash to be made from chaos, and chaos is coming, and we can benefit from this in many different ways. Um, a hard border across Ireland, for example, would be a boon to smugglers. And so gangsters might get quite interested in that as a possible means to, to make money. So Caffrey is a businessman. He's just quite a ruthless businessman um, who has fought his way to the top. Years ago, and your, your prospective CEOs will hate to hear this, but years ago I did a, a TV series on evil for Channel 4. And I spoke to a psychiatrist, I think it was a psychiatrist, who said that the very aspects uh, that can make a successful serial killer or psychopath also make for a successful CEO. That, ability, that lack of empathy, the ability to be able to just to, to consign thousands of people to the unemployment queue with a stroke of a pen, um, that interest in materialism over kind of human emotions and things. He said, you know, that, that makes for a successful psychopath. And some very successful business people have all the elements you need to be a psychopath. They've just gone a slightly different direction, thank goodness. Well... Yes, it's an interesting one. I think that there have been some interesting studies, but the move is certainly changing towards more purpose-led leadership. So there has been a shift over the last couple of decades. Absolutely. I mean, it's like that thing about chefs. I know you've interviewed uh, Tom Kitchen. I mean, chefs used to be tyrants in the kitchen. They thought the way to get things done was to bully. And then chefs like Tom came along and other, other great chefs came along who said, no, no, you want a happy kitchen. You want a happy workplace. If the people are motivated and they're not terrified, you're going to get more out of them. You're going to get more passion from them. Uh, and that's absolutely true, absolutely true. And it's, it should be the same in any business, that the tyrants hopefully are a thing of the past. Um, ruling by fear hopefully is a thing of the past. Um, and, and getting your workforce uh, of every level involved in a company, passionate about the company, as if they're part of a family, is a much better thing for the whole company and all the people involved in it. Ian, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. Thank you so much for giving me your time. Thank you. You've been listening to the School for CEOs Leadership Insights Podcast with host Gemma Soule and guest speaker Ian Rankin. I wasn't sure what to expect when I met Ian, but I was really struck by his humility and how grounded he was. I'd wondered whether the life of a writer was a lonely one. But actually, Ian highlighted the importance of a number of key people who have all contributed to his success. But I think what I enjoyed most was his realist approach to optimism. He knew from an early age that he loved stories, both consuming and producing them. He didn't share his passion with others at first, but that never stopped him from pursuing it and I admired his dogged single-mindedness and resilience to keep pursuing his passion with the optimism that he will eventually achieve success. I hope you enjoyed listening. If you'd like to hear other episodes, you can find our podcast through our website, www.schoolforceos.com forward slash thought hyphen leadership.
It's also available on Spotify or iTunes. Just search for School for CEOs Leadership Insights. Thanks for listening and see you soon.